Hello world, welcome to the very first Pink Bike Podcast, possibly called the Pinkcast. I might get outvoted on that one, I'm not too sure. I'm Mike Levy, your host for this first episode. I've been reviewing bikes and gear on Pink Bike for something like 100 years. It's been a while. So eventually we're going to be talking news and all things mountain bike on future episodes. But this first episode of the Pinkcast, it's all about value bikes, where to save money, where to spend money. We're also going to chat about the field trip value bike review series that's going on right now. So that saw us review eight bikes, four of them under three grand, four of them under two grand. So there's plenty of relevant talking points to talk about there. So I'm here with my two bosses. I hope I don't say anything too stupid today. Brian Park is the head of editorial in all caps letters. Sorry, he doesn't make me write about linkage forks. He's going to make me stop writing about them. And then I also have my unpaid intern here, Mike Casimer. Boys, say hi. It's weird I don't get paid, but I'm still your boss. That's interesting. I know. That's super strange. (laughs) I've been doing creative accounting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How are you guys today? Good. Well. Yeah? No no corona? Not yet. Secure. Not yet. Good, good, good. I'm not in a van though, so you wish you were. That's true. Casimir's completely bugged out. He's he's hiding in a van right now on lockdown, self quarantining. He's DJing. He's like getting to this between DJ sets. Yeah, I just drive. I'm doing raves, underground raves. We're talking about Corona here. We're going to talk about it for another minute before we move on to actual bike stuff. All this craziness that's going on right now, it's keeping most of us in our homes, and it seemed like a good a time as any to start this podcast thing. Uh, I hope you guys are all out there doing the same, stuck in your homes like you should be. Um, But if we're going to talk about mountain biking, I want to take a minute to say that now is not the time to be sending shit like you got nothing to live for, okay? So if you can ride, if you guys are allowed to ride out there right now, just ride within your limits. If you're doing things stupid, if you're hurting yourself, you're only going to prolong this corona thing. Uh, You're going to make it worse. So ride within your limits. In short, don't be stupid. Right? Don't be stupid. Normally we go by the right amount of stupid thing, but for now, just don't be stupid. Yeah, I'm, I'm having to really think about because I am used to the right amount of stupid. So now we're having... Yeah, that is our motto. Just internally, so everybody knows that is kind of our motto. The right amount of stupid. It's been working so far. Yeah. How should we do this? What should we? What should this Grim Donut head angle be? The right amount of stupid. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay, so on to the cheap bikes. I guess we're supposed to say inexpensive bikes, not cheap. Cheap kind of tells me that they're bad, but inexpensive, less expensive. Uh, well, there's like, there's a difference. Like there's a cheap bike and then there's a bike that ha- like, you can have a $10,000 bike that's good value. Theor- oh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can have a $5,000 bike that's good value. You can have a $5,000 bike that's good value compared to other $5,000 yeah. bikes. Value and cheapness are not the same thing. No, 100%. Definitely not. So we've definitely, at Pink Bike, we're known for not the cheap bikes, not the inexpensive bikes. A lot of that stuff that we review is $7,000, $10,000. And we just got back from the field trip series. The bikes were $3,000 and they were $2,000 under those two price points. So it's pretty interesting. Casimir, what did you expect from these things before we went there? Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I knew that in the $3,000 price range, things would be probably pretty decent. Cause that's kind of where in my mind, that's where you start getting into a, a good bike, something that has the parts and the things you'd want. But I was more skeptical about the below $2,000 kind of in my mind, I'd always set sort of a limit of like bikes below $2,000 tend to not be able to hold up to harder riding kind of like the way we like to ride. So it's pretty interesting to kind of dive into that realm, um, and get on, on those level of bikes now. Yeah. I, I didn't think the things would fall apart. 
that's for sure. But at the same time, I definitely thought some of those sub $2,000 bikes would be worse than they worse than they actually were. Yeah, I was picturing for those cheaper ones just to be, you know, uncomfortable seats, long stems, probably narrow handlebars, just kind of poorly spec'd for the price. But it turns out that wasn't really the case. Yeah, and I think for me, the big surprise was the geometry. Like some of those sub $2,000 bikes, they're not using crazy numbers, but they're using numbers that geometry numbers that make sense that aren't going to hold anybody back. And I thought, Hey, you know, this $1,400 boss nut, it's going to have a 390 millimeter reach and a 90 degree head angle. But that wasn't the case at all. I think it's worth talking about why mountain bike media or a lot of media review expensive bikes or expensive products a lot of the time. And it's not, it's not because necessarily Kaz or Levy are bike snobs um, that only want to ride ten thousand dollar uno dashes although maybe you are but <laughs> i do like them but <laughs> i do only want to ride ten thousand dollar uno dashes to be completely honest with everybody listening when when you're a bike brand and you want or you're going to get a review done the worst thing in the world is to get um well the prevailing wisdom is that like the worst thing in the world is to get called out on spec it used to be back in the day like you know bike reviews would be well, this one has an XT rear derailleur, where this other one has an XTR rear derailleur, and it's just unacceptable to have the XT rear derailleur. And so bike brands kind of come from this place of, for God's sake, like the only thing we can control is the frame. Please, let's just throw all the nice stuff on it. That's the one we want people to review. That's our review sample unit that we send around. Please, like, we can only control the frame, so... That's what, you, you know, no excuse for talking about anything bad about the bike otherwise, because it's got all the nice stuff. I understand why people want to do that, but I'm glad that it's changing. I'm glad, you know, when we did this cheap bikes thing, value bikes thing. Inexpensive, um, inexpensive, not cheap. <laughs> and some of them aren't that great value either, which we'll, we'll get to later. But like inexpensive bikes thing, there wasn't that much resistance, was there, Kaz? Out of all the time periods in mountain biking, like now is probably the best to be looking at this category of bikes because they have really evolved over the last, I'd say like five years or so, there's really been a, a significant change in the, the level that you're getting. This, the trickle down has really finally happened. Um, so at these lower price points, things are really pretty good right now. Um, and we've also seen, you know, things like the 12 speed drivetrains that we'll talk about and all those have trickled down where we're talking about these super expensive $10,000 bikes. A lot of times the reason that they show up is because those are the ones that have the newest, the latest and greatest parts, you know, like ceram eagle that wasn't available on cheap bikes until really the last couple of years so that's why you know companies want us to check out the latest and greatest stuff we get these fancy bikes uh, but now it's kind of really trickled down we can check them out check out you know how the less expensive things handle i definitely think there's something to be said too for an a a more expensive bike is sometimes maybe a lot of times more interesting than a less expensive bike and and a lot of people reading these bike reviews that aren't planning on buying the bike they're reading a bike review because it's an interesting bike or, you know, something about it is interesting. Um, you know, like, I don't want to read a Toyota Corolla review. I want to read a Ferrari 488 review sometimes. But it turns out, you know, it can't be like that all the time, can it, boys? No, exactly. I mean, it's good to have a mix. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, I, Ford Taurus or whatever is not going to do it for me. The Ferrari's great. But as far as my personal bikes, you know, I'm not on a $10,000 bike for the bike that I own. And for the things that most people ride and own, we know that they're not all on super bikes. So. It's good to see what else is out there. So my next question for you guys, what is the actual difference? You've got a $10,000 bike you're going to take for a ride. You've got a, let's call it a $3,000 bike. You do a hour long ride. It's kind of rough terrain. Casimir, what is someone actually going to notice? What is different? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it depends. One thing you may notice is the weight, but I don't think that's the thing you really notice. It's going to probably be the suspension performance, particularly the fork, um, as well as the shifting performance. I think those two things and possibly the brakes. So really, there's three things. Brakes, shifting, and suspension. Those are things that change. Everything that matters. Pretty much. But the, the, the ride itself, like the way that the frame itself feels probably won't be as big of a difference. You know, even carbon versus aluminum, all that, it kind of blends, fades away. But like a really inexpensive budget fork does feel significantly different than like your, you know, fancy 36 or Lyric or whatever. I want to talk a little bit about rear suspension. I was super surprised about how these so-called, the inexpensive bikes, the rear suspension, I mean... If I didn't know I was on a $2,200 or something or other, the rear end feels remarkably good. Like it feels just as good as something that cost five, $7,000, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think some of that has to do with the, the fact we're on shorter travel bikes. I think suspension flaws tend to show up a little bit more if we had, you know, say 150, 160 millimeter bikes. That's when you get, you know, pedal bob and that type of thing can become more apparent. But when we're running... You know, a 130 mil bike running 25% sag, it's really not moving that much until you're really pounding downhill. So I think it's it's pretty clear that, um, especially in that, this category of bike, the the fork takes way more impacts because it's in front of your body weight. The way you rear end tracks on a downhill bike, that rear suspension is so critical. With every bike, your weight is behind the rear fork. So if you are choosing between putting money into your fork or money into your shock, it's, I think it comes down, the back of the bike is dealing with leverage that hides a lot of things. The front of the bike, that $200 fork, it is right under your hands. It is telling you what's happening. It's telling you what it's not doing. Nowhere for it to hide. You know, I, one, you guys were saying, talking about what are the differences between a $10,000 bike and a $2,000 bike. Um, I was surprised that you guys went in on parts because until recently, the biggest difference between them was geometry. And I'm so, you guys are sick of me going on about it, but geometry over everything. It used to be that the new bikes, the $10,000 bike was the one that got the good geometry. And to some degrees, we saw that with the value bikes that we just tested. But for the most part, like they had pretty up-to-date-ish geometry. Like it used to be, it used to be that the model that was, that came out five years ago was now the bikes, the now the brand's value bike. And, you know, it was the fanciest one five years ago, and now it's the value bike, but it has five years ago geometry. Yeah, whereas now most of those inexpensive, well, all of them, there was nothing wrong with the Geo on any of them. Uh, like the, the giant stance wasn't exactly the longest thing around, but the sub $2,000 bikes, if we don't look at the hardtails, the sub $2,000 full suspension bikes, they were all around the 460-ish reach mark. Uh, they all had head angles that made sense. The sub $3,000 bikes, I think they were all like, you know, 10 to 15 millimeters longer, but they were all kind of usable, proper geometry that makes sense. I was going to, it kind of goes back to that trickle down thing that I was talking about before. Really, this is the geometry numbers on these bikes are from about three years ago, but geometry had this kind of drastic change three years ago. And now we're starting to see a little bit of a slowdown. Like you're not, bikes can't go. There are limits. I mean, Grim Donut excluded, no limits, but you know, so these bikes a few years ago would have been the geometry of the brand new bikes. Now, right now we're seeing bikes are a little longer, a little slacker, but things aren't going quite as crazy long, crazy slack. So we're going to reach a period where I think geometry is going to level out a little bit. It's probably a topic for another, uh, another one of these podcast things, but I think, you know, it has trickled down to a nice spot. It it sounds like what you're saying is that the sub $3,000 bikes were a couple of years, like two years ago, geometry and the sub $2,000 bikes were 
four years ago geometry or three years ago like it, yeah i'd say that's fair yeah the difference isn't that drastic anymore you know because all the numbers are kind of getting pretty similar when you looked on paper a lot of these bikes were nearly identical but let's be honest like that that giant that you guys um really struggled with if that had been at part of the regular field test where we test it against all of the latest greatest high-end bikes that would have that bike would have really the, the geometry would not have been acceptable oh yeah no we would have noticed that for sure it would, it would have been a an outlier in the geometry department but really that's the one i mean between that and maybe the hans or you know the steepest head angles and things but overall i'd say that you know it's kind of like that 66 degree head angle or 60-ish reach is kind of what a size large is for all these value bikes that we're on. So no one's getting screwed on the geometry anymore. Is that bottom line? We can all agree on that? Seems like it, yeah. Well, no, I mean, uh, I think there's probably, I mean, people make money at every stage of the game and probably we should talk at some point about the different business models um, because people are adding value throughout different parts of of each transaction, like, you know, the factory makes the bike and sells it to the manufacturer who assembles it and sells it to a distributor who uh, takes on a lot of risk booking it and bringing it into a country who then turns around and then now do they sell it to a shop or do they sell it direct to you? Um, you know, so there's how many middlemen are there? Nobody's getting screwed in any of those instances because everybody adds value and takes on risk in each of those things. But it kind of depends on what's important to you. So you guys are consumer, you're Brian, you're buying a $2,000 bike. Where are you buying it from? Are you buying it from the internet? Are you buying it from a bike shop? Uh, I'm buying it from the internet. If I have to buy a $2,000 bike, I'm buying it from the internet. Absolutely. Dude, you said the exact opposite thing to me yesterday. We were arguing about it. No, no, no. Uh, When you and I were arguing about it, it's that I think that a lot of people who are buying sub $2,000 bikes benefit from the bike shop transaction to get on the right size, to make sure they're on the right kind of bike so they have somewhere to go when something goes wrong. I don't need that. You don't need that, right? So if I'm buying a $2,000 bike, I'm going to buy it from the internet. But if, you know, a buddy of mine is getting into mountain biking, absolutely, I think that they should consider going to a shop if they're not, if they aren't, you know, uh, mechanically inclined or know what they want. Yeah, I would, I mean, if I was spending two grand, I would like to think that I, in a, and I was a new rider, I would like to think that I would get it off the internet and watch a video on how to build the thing and build it myself. But I, I will concede that I don't think that's how the majority of people are going to do it. And there's definitely a benefit. You're a new rider. You go into a bike shop. They say, hey, you need this. You need this. Maybe you get hooked up on a group ride. There's obvious benefits there for sure. Maybe not right now. Right now. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe right now. Don't don't go to the like. No, you don't go on your group ride right now and your and your local bike shop to try on all the clothes in the change room. What is a consumer benefiting? What are they getting by going mail order then, Brian? Just more bike? Is that all they're getting? Yeah, they've they've removed at least one um at least one layer of middleman. Um so it, it people take get different um margins at different parts of the of the game and um you know, uh a shop will take anywhere between 10 and 40 percent depending on the product and the bike sorry we're talking about bikes it's you know 10 or 40 percent um depending on the bike depending on the business model like some of these um site to store models where the store sells it um or the store stocks it but it gets sold online 
um, and then somebody goes to the store to pick it up, they're actually taking a smaller margin than if the store sells it to the person that comes in off the street. You know, it's all about who's assuming that risk and who's making the decisions on like, yeah, we think we'll sell X number of XT Fox 29er trail bike next year. You know, the forecasters have a hard job. Scary job picking up, spending a lot of money deciding you're going to sell 50 of these and 20 of those. And, and then some asshole on pink bike comes out and says it's got like too short a chain stays or too long a chain stays or something. And then that decision you made six months ago, man. Yeah, that's why it's good to make the right decision to begin with. Yeah, don't mess up. We'll call you out. Don't blow it. It's easy. Don't blow it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that to make that in simpler terms, if you go direct to consumer, you save you know a decent chunk of money, maybe three to $500, sometimes up to $1,000, depending on the price point you're looking at. Um, but we have seen in recent years, I don't think that the the value is not quite as strong as it used to be. Like the, the direct-to-consumer prices have crept up a little bit. I think initially they wanted to get in the game. They came in at super low prices and it was really attractive. And now they're still low prices and you can still save a decent amount of money, um, but you can still get pretty good value from your uh, typical brick-and-mortar uh, bike shop kind of thing. Especially if you buy last year's. Yeah, exactly. Talking about value, one of the bikes in particular at the field trip, the Caliber Bossna, is the least expensive. I think it was about 1400 bucks, depending on the taxes and duties. The least expensive bike of the test. Casimir, if that was your only mountain bike, would you be riding the same trails that you're riding now? What would change? Some of the trails I probably wouldn't ride, but overall for like your general trail riding, it would be fine. Um, yeah, it's just more like maybe like, bigger drops and jumps and more aggressive rowdy riding it's it could probably handle it to a certain point but you know it's a pretty inexpensive fork and the brakes aren't that strong so there are limitations to where you can really rally that thing but for your general just go out and kind of classic mountain biking it would be fine um i don't think i'd be much slower really like on the on your more average ride it would feel pretty normal i think you'd replace things more often though yeah exactly things would probably break and again just having you know the brakes themselves and that fork are really the things that are going to hold you back from really being like, I got this. You might be like, Oh, my brakes might not slow me down in time for that tree. So. So I think that brings us to another value bike related topic here. When stuff breaks, when you want to replace things, we, we complained a bit about the recon fork. Uh, does it make sense? You have a $1,400 bike. Does it make sense to put a, a $700 or even a $500 fork on the front of your mountain bike? How upgradable are these things, Kaz? Yeah, I mean, I think these these bikes are upgradable, and you could definitely put a fancy high end fork on that bike. Uh, it just depends how much your your budget is, because you know, say say we're going to go crazy and buy a top of the line Rockshox or Fox, that fork is going to be a thousand dollars, and that's half the price, or that's the price of the whole bike. So, I don't know if it's quite worth it. Yeah. Well, but I think that there's a there's clearly sort of you guys dealt with the field at the field trip, like there's two tiers of that of that entry-level suspension there's the there's the um sort of the two thousand dollar bikes all had all had the recon right or on or maybe did they also have a rhythm did, did you have a rhythm in there uh no it's all recons except for the z2 which the z2 is good we can talk about how the z2 is really good right well and and then that next tier is the z2 and you were all, that was only available on the hardtail right no the vetus oh the vetus right. had it, and the vetus was two thousand dollars that was like the top of our two thousand dollar price cap and that was where all of a sudden you're like, oh, now we can get the Z2. But yeah, I think if you had that recon fork, the recon's a tricky one because there's not a lot you can do with that. Where if I had like the uh, even the Revelation or some of the higher end ones, sometimes you get a different damper and make it feel a little bit better. 
that that Z2 is a good fork. Yeah, it's super good for the price and even price taking the price out of the equation. It's still a good fork. It's just simple. It feels great. Predictable. Like It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially that that Fox rhythm thing from a few years ago that the grip. You mean grip one? It, it's like it's like an updated grip one. Yeah. Yeah, it's like open bath something. But yeah, it's, it works really well. Yeah, I'd run that on the front of anything, I think, without any real complaints. And that's only 500 bucks in North America. I, I hear it's a bit more expensive in Europe, but in North America, it's it's uh, it's really reasonably priced. So it'd be nice to see product managers maybe worry less about some some of the other stuff, the grips. Dude, uh, such a hard job, product manager. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, that's, yeah, there's not a lot of places you could do on some of these bikes. Like you can tell they just worked mm-hmm. hard to get it at that price. And there's not many things you could make better without making that price go up it's well, just tricky so for those that don't know a product manager is the person who basically decides the parts that go on the bike that determine the price brian is he is he building the bike to a price is that how it works often yeah uh, often they'll have either they'll have a lot of data within and within the industry like oh well specialized got this bike at 999 and trek has it at at uh, 1099, um, you know, and it's a, that's a, a, it has whatever, a through axle and this and that. And, uh, and well, how can we get to the same level? It needs, you know, we've got a distributor yelling at me, like it, this needs to have a Dior rear derailleur. Why are you putting an Acera rear derailleur on it, etc. Um, and, or you'll have a, um, if not a distributor, then you'd be having the consumers like, you're definitely looking at your competition and then you're definitely looking at um, where you are as a brand. Like on the flip side, like you'll be in a pricing meeting going like, well, okay, we can actually make money here on this one. Whereas this other one, like we just need to hit that, you know, uh, $2,999 full suspension. We have to get under that in the U S let's let's take a haircut on the margin just to get there because we're trying to grow our territory we're trying to increase our number of dealers and they need that bike at that price and it has to have a z2 in front yeah i think one thing we're running into for this season of bikes is the fact that um at that at the price point that say sub two thousand even sub three thousand dollar price point sram's the only one with a kind of viable 12 speed option at that price um, so everything basically that we were on came with that SX drivetrain because Shimano hasn't come out with their uh, less expensive 12 speed drivetrain, which I'm sure is in the works. I mean, it's just, that's how things go. So once that happens, then we'll, that SX, worked well. Yeah, SX worked well. I do know that uh, consumers have had issues with some of the early batches that just, so that's why I think we see a lot of some people complaining that it's garbage. It's not garbage. At least this, all the versions we had eight drivetrains um, worked pretty well, but ergonomic issues and stuff, we can talk about that in a bit, but um but yeah, so one thing that just my, back to my point is right now you're only getting SRAM drivetrains on these bikes because people want 12 speeds and it's the only one available at that price. There's also people don't like the idea that the drivetrain is the, it's the lowest end one. And they're, you know, I'm spending friggin' what, it works. two grand. Well, that's just right. It's, it's, but I used to be able to get, spend $2,000 and get a bike with XT now I have to. Now I spend two thousand dollars, and it's going to be. A, it's got SX. It's the lowest end one. Yeah, that's bullshit, though. I know. <laughs> I would take. I would take current SX over two thousand and five XT any day. Like people don't remember how bad it was in two thousand five. Do you remember that really nice 
eight speed XT though. Do you remember that really nice? Yeah, I would. I would love that. I would take. I would take the XT, eight speed XT. The thummy? And no, it was good. I okay. It was so good. Those that know <laughs> right, so? some people out there right now uh-huh. are going, "Uh huh." I do the yeah. same. You think you would? SX is good, but for God's sakes, why can't they make it so people can reach the thumb paddles? Okay, for you. You retro grouch weirdos. I, yeah. Casimir, you have big hands and you couldn't reach them. I have little girl hands. I still couldn't get it. Yeah, it's because they don't want to. I mean, especially if you have Shimano brakes, that's always been the issue. Like Shimano brakes, they don't want to play well with SRAM. I wish they would just get over it and make a way that all these things could match together. But even with the SRAM brakes. Oh, should we advocate for a standard? I'm fine. That's a standard. I'm fine. If you can just make the things connect. <laughs> yeah. Standard? Handlebar standard. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, if. If Matchmaker and iSpec, what are they up to? iSpec, to something. Yeah, there's a lot. But if they, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would take, I'd accept a $10 premium and 30 grams. Let's, yeah, make it happen, guys. Yeah, just put, yeah, if you can make it so your brakes and levers can attach. $10 and 30 grams more. Let's, let's do it. And then all of the things will play nice together. And I think that was a complaint across the board on, all the bikes, Shimano brakes, SRAM brakes, it didn't matter that we couldn't reach those SX shifters. That was... Yeah, because it's almost like they were designed... Whoever designed it was setting up with the brake all the way flush against the grip, you know, or like really close, but that's not how you grab a brake. You slide the brake lever in so that your finger can... Kaz, I don't know. I was I was using four fingers on during some of those oh, yeah. trip laps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's that, that issue too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what they're talking about there is that um, a lot of the inexpensive brakes that get spec'd on these inexpensive bikes um are kind of held over front for uh, beginner mountain bikers beginner cyclists who are using who are using three fingers to break and um like just grabbing a fistful of break and so yeah it just it just doesn't work very well when you set it up properly yeah and a lot of those well some of them i think most of our field trip bikes did they uh... Did most of them come with resin pads and resin-only rotors? Yeah, I think so. A lot of them do at that lower yeah. end. And they, they do that because there's less initial bite and there's less chance of it making noise. Is that that's correct? They do it because there's less chance for noise. But the biggest reason is that it's the resin-only pads are a lot – or resin-only rotors are a lot cheaper. Or, I mean, on the bill of materials, it's probably a dollar or a few cents or something. But it is cheaper. Um, because they go through one, uh, one less process. They don't go through a, a fi- I think they don't go through a final heat treat. Ah, they feel yeah. terrible. Not ideal. Yeah. Resin on resin. Yeah. Yeah. That those, those slippery rotors and those resin pads, like that would be a, actually that's a, that's a good point to bring up here is that those entry level bikes, I know they're saving, like you said, it's to save money. Those rotors are less expensive to make, but just because the bike is fourteen hundred dollars, I feel like the brakes should still work really well. You know, I, but I feel like you guys have said that about every single thing. Like it should have, it should. The only place, that, the only thing that's free in all of these discussions is geometry. You know, um, and whereas every other thing was being like, oh, it should have a better fork. Oh, it should have better this. It should have a better drivetrain. It should have, you know, like it, it's. No, but I think we've been talking more about what you would upgrade, though. Like I don't think that. I think we we're pretty happy with the spec on most of these bikes. There was a couple that kind of didn't meet our expectations, but overall, I think they're all rideable and just fine. But if you had more money, I think it's a thing you can put. It's worth considering upgrading in the future just to get better performance. So if I was a product manager, that would be one of the things that I would try to squeeze in. Like I would, my goal, I'm not a product manager. I'm sure it's difficult for those product managers out there listening right now. But 
it would be one of my goals to have no bikes with those resin pads and terrible resin only rotors. I wonder if there's a if there's like a, a middle ground. Like, could they could they get away with resin and resin um, if they all just went like forget it? We're going to go to 200 mil rotors. Like, why not? It's it, I'm sure that a, all the processes involved in the rotors. I'm sure going from a 180 to a 200 doesn't really cost much more. I could be totally wrong. Somebody correct me, but. It's usually it's usually a process that adds money, not the tiny amount of more material, right? But then it kind of stinks that you can't switch. Like even if we made more power with the bigger rotors, you still can't switch your pads out to metallic if that's something you want to do because you're still stuck with a resin only rotor. So. Totally. Um, but what are you willing to give up to 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 do that? Like if you go from resin only to metallic, what what are you willing to give up? Bad tires. Or- well, no, I, could, I think you can stick with the resin only and things. Just people that want the better performance should have the ability to swap that out without it being too expensive. Like if you have the normal caliper that can accept resin or I don't even know. Like, well, the calipers don't, the calipers will accept whatever. It's the, the, the rotors won't. No. Nah. Wait, what? They make one. There's one that only, no. yeah, there's one that only takes the resin only pads. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like the only pads they make that fit the shape are resin only or something. Of that one. Oh, really? Okay. I stand corrected. Yeah. yeah, it's only in some of it. It's tricky because these these part numbers, we had to dive deep into our part number research database because there's so many things that we haven't dealt with the MT201s or whatever. So trying to keep track is a little tricky. I do want to know what you guys would, would make worse to get some better stuff because that's what's interesting. Like, Yeah, it is a balance, I guess, isn't it? Like you, you have X amount of dollars. They have X amount of dollars this bike could cost. If this is better, this has got to be worse, right? I mean, I would go with a nine-speed drivetrain to get better brakes. Like, does somebody make a wide? But, but consumers, uh, they probably would. I saw that in the comments. Would you go with a? Yeah, but they're lying. Yeah, yeah. Shop floor versus versus not, but like, I don't know. People buy what people tell them to buy on the internet, and if all the commentary is saying I'd buy a nine-speed drivetrain. It's just it's a little bit harder sell on the shop floor where some guys like oh look at that one and you're like oh that can climb up the side of Mount Everest and then this one can't so I mean the reality is there's very little difference in the real world you know if there's less speed similar range like this stuff it all works super well so I would by far take less gears and better brakes oh yeah if you had a similar range like even if you had like a what you, like eleven that doesn't exist right now Levy a cheap nine speed that can handle mountain biking and is the cost of a current uh, a Sarah level nine speed or turny level nine speed. I don't think that that exists, but you're right. I would take, we would take less complication, just less speeds as long as it, and not worry about our cadence so much if that did exist. What about, I mean, one of the things I see on a lot of entry level bikes that is kind of garbage is they, they all come with like 32 or 34 tooth chain rings. Uh, because most people who are buying $2,000 bikes are new riders and need some time to get fitness and they can always put... I know Levy's freaking out here. They have a 50-tooth chain ring and the gear ratio is easier than a granny ring and a 36-tooth cog. Fucking grow a pair. Well, did I just assume your fitness? What I'm saying is you can put a nine a regular 9-speed on without super wide range and go to a 30-tooth in your spec. There you go. You're not, you know, you don't need, they're not going to spin out. It'll be fine. And the other thing, they can totally save money on things like um, they need to just take off front derailleur mounts, take off some of the frame detailings. You know, each frame shape or like hydroform thing adds cost and is unnecessary. 
for for a two thousand dollar bike. Like it makes the bike look cooler, but a round tube works awesome. Kona saved money by skipping a cable guy. Oh my god! <laughs> Giant saved money by skipping the through axle. <laughs> yeah, but they had a front derailleur mount though. Oh, that's true. It all balances out. And then and then Bosna had two ICG tabs. That's true. Yeah, you could mount both types of chain guys. Yeah, actually, they had six six mounting holes, so you could do both. Yeah. I wanted to talk about reliability as well, too. So last year's field test series, we had some fancy bikes, and two of them broke. Uh, field trip, we've got some relatively inexpensive bikes here. We didn't have any major issues, did we? No, just some flat tires, but it's really pointy in Sedona and those had tubes in them. So that was predictable. Well, you, I mean, you were also riding them in a place that does not have the same terrain as, as we had in, in, uh, on the high end. And, but I mean, neither, it wasn't the terrain that broke either of those bikes. Yeah. And I don't think that that it's a hard, yeah, it's a hard one, it's a hard one to say, like, I'm sure all the bikes we just finished riding, you, they could break in a certain situation, but um, it is kind of nice just that we got out of it with no issues, really. Like, no broken components at all. No. We had, there's that one recon fork on the front of the Santa Cruz that none of us really got along with. Was it different from the other recons? It seemed like it. Something. So none of the recons were great. They all required about like 20 or 30 pounds of pressure more than recommended to keep it up in its travel. Uh, that particular recon though on the front of the Santa Cruz was super inconsistent and one jump by front end would be sky high. The next one I'd be almost flipping over the handlebars. You know, normal stuff. You want me to get you some coaching or something? <laughs> I think I, I might need it if I keep using that fork. That's for sure. Yeah, but no derailers fell apart. You know, we read these comments of inexpensive derailers just imploding. And granted, we were only there for two weeks. I think a, a longer term review would definitely see some issues. But I mean, I was I was impressed. Nothing fell apart. Nothing broke. It was great. I should know this, but um, are any of the bikes still in your garage, Levy? No, none of the bikes came here. Well, they're all returned to their homes. They're all still back, yeah. I mean, that it wouldn't have been terrible to ride the boss nut. Say, or get somebody to ride yeah. the boss nut. Not should see about keeping one of them for a long term. I've got all these $10,000 test bikes I have to ride, guys. I don't have time for the boss nut. <laughs> yeah, I don't think durability would have been as much an issue, really. It would, like, as far as, like, are things going to wear out faster? I think your budget drivetrain doesn't wear out any faster than your super fancy one. I mean, maybe your chain, if you're really super picky, but... Um, I think it does. Why? I think people don't take care of their shit anyway. So yeah, like, what, why would That's I mean? True. The pulleys are the same plastic on both of them. Like, the, the chain ring is pretty much the same. I don't think it would wear out any quicker. Well, in some cases, you're right. It, they would wear out slower, like where they've versus like a steel cassette versus a, and a cassette that has alloy throughout um, to save weight is is gonna the steel cassette will hold up just fine. But it's pretty similar. I know that the fancy, like the super fancy SRAM chain on that that cycling tips testing thing that they showed, it, it said it lasted longer. But overall, for your general consumer usage, I don't think you'll be needing to go to the shop any more often uh, as far as for drivetrain issues. And you won't have to worry about your batteries running out of juice on the trail. Has that happened to you yet, customer? Has your access died? I went to go for a ride the other day and I got out of the car. I should have, and then I hopped on the bike and the battery was dead. But then I figured out if you punch the derailleur, you can shift it into the next gear. So I just like pushed it and it made bad noises. And then I got to the gear I wanted and I climbed up the hill. And then I got to the top. I just reefed on it and it made more of that noises. It's so good. Let's uh, let's change direction here for a second. We're going to go from, from value bikes to $2,000 drivetrains. I'm in. <laughs> right, Brian, my boss right now, Brian, is like, what? Where Curveball, where are we going? I'm in. No, it's good. 
celebrate the the bleeding edge yeah sure. you've been impressed with that stuff so far it eh, has yeah i do i mean it is it is impressive there's there's some little things that i'd like to see better but as far as how it works uh for a first effort from them it's pretty yeah they did a good job yeah the lever again though we're back to lever ergonomics and i wish that they the lever is not great. yeah like it's, it's super easy to shift that's what's like crazy about it you like a super light click you're shifting it's perfect every single time but then the lever shape, if they just made it like their current levers on their normal shifters, I'd be totally happy. But instead, it's this weird kind of like flippy thing that I never feel like is quite right. Yeah, I feel like it could be a little better. I've got mine pushed like right up against the grip. So I like bump it with my thumb knuckle. Yeah, that's how I do it too. It yeah, it's great. Yeah, I like I like that position, but I could definitely see a lot of people having issues with it. Even if they just rounded the shape, I don't know. It'd be cool if like, I'd like to see some cool aftermarket company make like a, an upgrade. Yeah like hack the electronics and make it some little thing that's perfect. Everybody's stuck inside right now playing with their 3D printers. Make us some Axis shifter paddles already, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's just get it into the lock-on, into the lock-ons. And just one one button on each side. It's wireless. Just put one on each side, up and down. Just a little toggle switch, like a toggle that just kind of goes up and down with like not like with just the right amount of resistance. It'd be really cool. It is cool though. Like I am glad that we have this in the industry now like there's a good balance of total bleeding edge sci-fi shit on one side and we're almost at a place now where like as soon as i think as soon as shimano also joins the party at the at the 12 speed wide range uh drivetrain party at the low end we're we're going to be in a pretty good place where we've got people doing sci-fi over here and you know people with uh, uh the 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 regular, I was going to say the dental dentists and the dental hygienists both have the thing, but I don't know if that's kosher. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, but yeah, it is cool to see the two different directions that things are developing, and they're both going a good place. Um, and I and I like, I mean, all of us here like the weird experimental stuff that happens, even if it never catches on. That's part of the one of the best parts about our job is trying something cool and different, and then getting to say if it's good or bad. Yeah, we do ride a lot of strange stuff. Some of us more than others. Yeah, <laughs> you got to. Yeah, some people yeah. seek them out. <laughs> you got to make yeah. it interesting. People, people yeah. love the interesting stuff, the different stuff. Okay, I want to also talk about used bikes. So back to the cheap stuff here. Does it make sense to buy a used bike these days, Casimir? You got fifteen hundred bucks to spend. Are you buying used? Are you buying new? What are you doing? Yeah, I think that fifteen hundred dollars is definitely going used. I mean, that's one of the same thing. Like, there's a lot of good bikes out there. You can. Look at the pink bike buy and sell. If you're in a town with an active mountain bike population, hop on Craigslist or just go to your local shop and see, you know, the Dalton board or whatever. And $1,500, if you get a bike from a year or two ago, you could probably score um, and have a pretty nice ride. Just got to look for, look for the good ones to trade your Xbox for. Is there a price, Casimir, where you would say it doesn't make sense to buy used anymore? You're spending this much? I mean, it's kind of tricky because, like, I have friends that they buy a used bike every year. They kind of have a... a they buy a used bike from a friend and they kind of basically the way it works is this guy buys a new bike. He rides it for a year and then he sells it to them used at the end of the year. And yeah, and they've just got this program. It kind of works out and they're spending, I, I think they're probably spending three or $4,000 on this bike, which when it was new, the guy probably paid five grand, you know, so or more. it just kind of depends whether, yeah, exactly. Or more. Um, I don't know personally, like it's kind of nice to have the warranty and the service and all that. If you spend a lot of money of the new bike, um, so that's kind of the way I would go, but I can see people wanting to save money no matter how much they're planning on spending. Uh, but I do think that below that two thousand dollar 
price point, that's a great place to be looking for used. I, I think the big, the scary one is really the uh, the used four or five grand bike that um, that somebody did like a hard season of of semi pro enduro racing on, um, and that oh, you know yeah. they got as a they got uh, as like a, a deal through either the shop shop support or or a, a grassroots program through a, a company, and they're just sending it. And they don't have a, a personal mm-hmm. mechanic at the races and, and this and that. So you get a bike, you spend, you know, that's a $10,000 bike, $8,000 bike that you spend four grand on. And then you need to replace the drivetrain. The suspension needs service. And then inevitably, two weeks after you buy it, you find some cracks that you definitely weren't you. Brian, are you saying it's not a good idea to buy a used Whistler rental bike? I am saying that. Yeah, I think we can go ahead and (laughs) just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is why it's good that social media exists. So you just hop on the person's Instagram, see their fancy pictures, and if you see them like hitting the Pemberton Road Gap or something, don't buy their bike. Right. I don't think I would buy a used bike if it wasn't in person. To be honest with you guys, a lot of people do. I, I mean, if I was spending two thousand dollars for whatever thousands of dollars, like one thousand dollars is a hell of a lot of money to be throwing away on. You know, a cardboard box that arrives to you with thing something you did not expect, mm-hmm. something that's trash. I think this is really funny coming th- coming from Levy, given his car. <laughs> what about it? <laughs> it's different. <laughs> so responsible with your with your finances. Life's life's a lot more fun when you're irresponsible. But I want I want a good mountain bike, and I am not gonna give a guy two thousand dollars. It's very clear you don't want a good car. It's It's good at certain things. Well, what is it? Yeah. We don't know what it's good at yet. It makes noise. It's good at making noise. It's good at at being very loud, uh, making me sweaty. Yeah. I'm always sweaty when I drive. It's good at being small. It's good at being really tiny. (laughs) It's really good at being small. It's really good at when you press the brake, it pulls to the left into (laughs) oncoming traffic. And when you press the gas, it pulls to the right off the road. Yeah. I don't, once you know that, I don't understand what the problem is. If you know that, there's no issue. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that, though. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I could have told you that before you went. Maybe. That was actually, there was some some loose uh, things up in there. So mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, you probably bought that. used sight unseen <laughs> off the internet. All right, back to bikes, boys. Casimir, <laughs> you're buying a used bike. What are you looking for on a used bike? Um, yeah, like you said, going in person is obviously the, the best way to do it. But if, if I'm there in person, I have the bike in front of me, I'm going to be checking the chain, checking the drivetrain in general. Um, just to see if that's totally roached and we'll need replacing. Um, same with the suspension. Kind of hopefully ask them if when the last time it was serviced. You know, bounce up and down on it. Just try to see how that is. And then look super close at the bike for any cracks. Um, you know, around all the welds, all the joints. I mean, those are the big things. Suspension, drivetrain, and frame. I mean, that's your whole bike. Everything else is pretty easily replaceable. But if you get a cracked frame, you're going to be out of luck, or at least have to deal with some really annoying hassles trying to get a crash replacement or something. Right. Yeah. I think I would break it into two categories too. Like you, there's consumables and then there's the things that you really hope aren't fucking broken. So consumables, chain, brake pads, grips, tires, those things. It's not the end of the world if you need new tires, but like, don't forget two new good tires. Is that like 200 bucks? Like that's insane. So 200 bucks for some high end new tires. So you got to keep that stuff in mind. Same with chains. If you have a 12 speed SRAM drivetrain and you need a new chain and you want it to match, you know, you want an XX one chain because you, the bike has an XX one drivetrain. Those things aren't cheap. Well, or you need an entire new XT XTR drivetrain. 
like a whole a new drivetrain. Oh yeah, like and that's the other thing. Your chain, if the chain is worn, that means that everything could be dead. You you maybe not just replace. The chain. And there's also the theory. There's two different ways on this. So I've seen I've had customers that you know they replace the chain all the time, or the other way, you just go until everything wears out and replace it all at once. Which I kind of appreciated that tactic. They yeah. would just go and like. What were you? What did you do? What did I do? Uh, I replaced chains, but I kind of appreciate the the like the commitment to just going all the way until it just totally fails, and then you replace your whole drive train at once. But that's a really expensive way to do it. Casimir and I, we both spent. I mean, how long were you in a bike shop for Casimir? A long time. Yeah, Maybe. ten years, eleven years. Yeah, yeah same thing. Like both of us did the decade as a bike shop mechanic thing. So I did too. We could all yeah, and Brian. Brian, I did too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> um don't forget so when you're a shop rad i mean you could just put your bike on the stand you check it out and you get obviously discounted parts but you also see a lot of the people that casimir's talking about those people that bring their bike in and they've worn their drivetrain out so much there are no teeth left on the pulley wheel like the pulley wheel is just round i love so that. good <laughs> when they wear the yeah. brake the disc brakes when the rotor is so worn out that it just it separates from the track like it just splits because the pads wear through the middle of the rotor yeah, exactly. It cracks down the middle. I've seen a rotor implode from that, dude. Yeah. Not me personally. The guy went over the handlebars, yeah. but yeah. It's better than it's better than when it was rim brakes and the and the pads would wear through the just rim. like concave the, yeah. the I've rim. seen those blow up. Until you started hearing the like tick, uh-huh. tick, tick, tick of yeah. the weld yeah. or the pin and then joint. You try to put a tire and, on uh, it. And then eventually it would just explode out the side. Yeah. Uh, somewhere right now a lot of people have no idea what we're talking about. But okay. yeah. It's, we're, we're like an hour in now. So yeah. like, rim brakes. Yeah. We've reached we've reached the end. Okay. It's rim brakes. <laughs> rim brakes. So what happens with rim brakes? There used to be disc brakes. They just used to make the disc really big and integrate it with the thing that holds your tire. So we've re- Imagine yeah. a 26 Lots inch disc. Right? <laughs> no, a 29 inch disc now. Yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> it's the future. Yeah. Uh, Casimir, before we wrap up here, I wanted to head back to the field trip. Uh, so we tested eight bikes, the, the Cummins Meta, the Jeff C. Base 29, the Hightower, the Norco Torrent, Vitas Mythique, Giant Stance, the Caliber Bossnut, and the Kona Hanzo. We're right in the middle of those reviews coming out right now. So this is a bit of a spoiler alert, people. If you don't want to hear this, maybe just stop listening. Did you have a favorite, Casimir? Um, yeah, I probably have a favorite in both categories, I guess, but my overall favorite I'd say would be that common saw, uh, just because it felt like it was the most solid, easy to ride bike. Um, and just, I just kind of felt the best suited to the terrain we were riding. Uh, but then my second favorite would be that Vetus. So one bike out of the $3,000 and then one out of the, um, the 2000 below category, but both those bikes are for the price. You're just getting a, a really great bike and not a lot that would need to be upgraded if anything right away. What's your surprise bike of the test? I think the bike that I was a little bit didn't do as well as I thought, or I didn't like it as much as I thought was a torrent. Um, had great part spec, the geometry long and slack and all that. But in Sedona, where we were, it just kind of wasn't the bike that inspired me to keep grabbing it, to keep riding it. it just kind of felt big and almost like it didn't fit where we were. I think at home, you know, like some nice low me, super steep trails, that bike could be really good. Um, but there it just kind of felt like a heavy, really long, big hardtail. Yep. I think I'd have to agree with your picks on that one there really that's so it really surprises me yeah <laughs> that's it is surprising and I agree. it surprises me because it looks so sick yeah it's a good looking bike personally feel like i love the idea of a of a badass hardtail like that more than i, I like the reality of a badass hardtail like that um i guess 
but that's one that I was interested in. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, like I would ride that at Whistler, like in the bike park and stuff. It'd, it'd be rattly, but like it would feel solid enough to do that. But compared to like the Hanzo, the other hardtail we had, that Hanzo is kind of pretty steep head angle and just feels a lot quicker, more agile, where the Torrent kind of like, all right, let's turn now. Come on, let's turn. Yeah, I think the Torrent, you're right, would be an entirely different story if it was written here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, I would have to agree that the meta and the Vetus pressive. I mean, obviously, for me, the disappointment was the giant stance, not to harp on it, but it just felt, you know, dated. It's going to be good for a lot of people in a lot of places, but I think those people will be new riders and those places will be fairly tamed terrain. With that stance, it was interesting to talk to uh, talk to Giant about our findings on that. And they kind of mentioned to us like, hey, you guys should take a look at the trance. It's $300 more, so it's $2,100. Um, and it has better geometry and better parts. So it's one of those things where you, when you're budget shopping and you're at that price, like $300 is still a lot of money. But for somebody that's really going to get into the sport and wants to progress further, if they can come up with that $300, then you can kind of get to that Definitely next category. do it. Yeah. Save yeah, for sure. 300 bucks. Trans overstand. Mm-hmm. But I do hope that, that brands are taking this to heart and understand that geometry is free. Because I feel like, you know, you can forgive inexpensive parts and spec um to get to a price point um and that's really on the parts manufacturers as much as and and the business model as much as anything else but but the geometry is free and that stance and actually a lot of those bikes could have had slightly more progressive updated geometry and wouldn't have cost a thing yeah but i don't think we had complaints like it's easy to be like oh it doesn't have a 480 reach it's gonna suck but it's actually really just fine Mm -hmm. so but yeah i think in the future we'll see the numbers like right now, a size large is like a 480 typically. A lot of these were 460. So things will still get a little longer, a little slacker like we talked about. But I do think that the message that... Wouldn't it be great to have the like the the current... Uh, what's the Norco inexpensive fluid? Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't it be great for that to have optic geometry? Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. close. How far like, off is it? There's no reason it doesn't. It's it's a little bit of a ways off. Yeah, and, it's close. Uh, I don't know. They will. It's coming around. Well, I think I assume, I assume they're updating it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, there's no reason that they shouldn't. So we've done the field trip value bike reviews. We've reviewed these eight bikes. Is this what Pink Bike is going to be now, Brian? As Brian, as my boss, are we doing way more value bike reviews now? Or can people still come to PB and see $10,000 dream bikes all the time? Uh, yes. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's the Inclusive or. <laughs> yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the, there's, there's for sure... Um, assuming we're like allowed out of our underground bunkers uh, again in, in the near future, yeah, we we have to do both. Yeah. The when you were you guys were talking about like the car magazines and this and that, Pink Bike has to be a place where we have the freaky, crazy, wild new stuff because as we're seeing here, what was the craziest newest shit eight years ago, five years ago is now showing up on the inexpensive bikes. Um, so we have to be on that on that front line, but I also think it's our responsibility to do more value based stuff and help people make their decisions. So yeah, both you have to work twice as hard. Perfect. Yeah. Oh yeah, that does bring up one point. I don't know if we really touched on it too much, but the the common theme that comes up is bikes are so expensive now; they're way cheaper twenty years ago, ten years ago. We didn't really touch on that, but for anybody that thinks that, it's not true. We did some price comparisons and looked at like the price of a you know a Yeti twenty years ago versus a Yeti now. And things haven't gotten any cheaper. Maybe Yeti's not the right example, but really any bike across the board, 
they were still expensive in the late 90s early 2000s you get so much more bike now obviously yeah. like that goes without saying too like yeah we've just been talking about riding these two thousand dollar bikes in sedona and having a blast like that literally would not be possible 10 years ago and we could do it but those bikes the bikes would be shit totally and, and the the what you get for two grand today is a 10 times more capable bike than what than what you could get for two grand even 10 years ago and even i think people forget mm-hmm. about inflation like when i see, i was working in a shop started working in the shop around 2000 and they were saying and like i remember telling people you have to spend at least two thousand dollars to get into like the really into the decent full suspension bike so this is two thousand i was saying two thousand dollars that price now with inflation is three thousand dollars which is almost exactly what i would say now like around three thousand dollars we really start getting into the good stuff so i don't think a lot has changed and that bike is way better and it's way better. Yeah, like it actually has good parts. And there's so many things that are better that it's hard to list them all. But yeah, it's a good time to be a mountain biker, even with the Corona. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Once we're past this whole weird locked in the bunker thing, it's gonna be a really good time to be a mountain biker again. Or esports are gonna take off. But either way. Uh, esport mountain biking? Yeah. No? Yeah. Downhill yeah. domination? Down- downhill Coming domination. World champs. Yeah. <laughs> I call the goat. <laughs> or line rider. I've, I've been advocating for line rider. I like downhill champs. domination with so much. Rider. Line rider is like the little thing, the little guy on the line. It's really like the name says. Oh, like cheap excite bike. Yeah. Sorry, inexpensive excite bike. <laughs> no, it's it's more like you design your course. I don't know. You, it's not really a win or lose. You just like design a course and then you let gravity do yeah. the thing with the little uh, guy. It's wild. I, I don't want you to search it out because it'll waste the rest of your day. I need you to do stuff. I was gonna say yeah. that goes the rest of my day. Let's wrap it up. So that was the first Pink Bike Podcast. We talked about value trips, where to spend your money, where not to spend your money. The plan is to do one of these every week. We're all stuck in our homes right now, so I think I think we can I think we could do that. So stay tuned next week for the next Pink Cast. <sighs> <See ya. laughs> Bye.